Hello, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can follow us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Thank you for joining us today. Kim and I are here every week to talk about topics we find in the wine world to explain and go over with you. And one of the things we decided together was every week we get topics that we talk to you about, but we were curious what we are Googling ourselves every week. So we're going to add a little new segment of what did we Google this week? So, Kim, what did you Google this week? I had to refresh my memory about a topic that is very fun and that I recently did a class on, which was the wines in uh, Game of Thrones, the both the television series and the, the book series. So I had put together this program probably a year ago, and it's really, I think it's really cool because there's a lot of wine in Game of Thrones. And I put together this little class where I would come up with what would those wines have tasted like? And I looked into some sort of visual cues from the TV show and descriptions in the books and then came up with real world versions that we could actually have in our glass that would hopefully taste like what I think uh, the creators of the show was kind of trying to get across as far as what the wines tasted like. So I had to do a little bit more research to sort of fill out what I was going to be tasting in my glass. So I did a fair bit of Googling of Game of Thrones stuff when it came to the wines would have tasted like from certain regions and then I made connections between real world wines and and uh, made up wines if you will so that was that was a big thing that I googled last week and what about yourself Mark for me I was reading a book it was called what varietal is that by Darby Higgs and it took each grape and kind of give you a background on it and I found a grape Arcascatelli they ranked grapes by importance so Cabernet was ranked one Chardonnay was ranked five but this grape was actually ranked 16th. So really? That it, high up? It, 16th. So it led me to why. So I googled the grape. And first, you know me with my pronunciation. I saw all different versions of how you, you uh-huh. pronounce it. So it starts with an R, but it was R Cascatelli I saw. I saw R Cascatelli. That's how I usually pronounce it. R Cascatelli. So, so either way, you don't really highlight the the R, I guess, but it's an ancient Georgian grape and very popular, I guess, to be ranked 16. So Mm -hmm. that led to my Google search this week. Very cool. Now, our first article we'd like to talk with you about is from VinePair about white blends, great value that nobody knows about. We're really familiar with red blends, and this is a very trendy style of wine that a lot of people have really jumped on the bandwagon of drinking red blends, especially red blends from California. But the flip side of that is white blends, and we really don't hear a lot about white blends. This article was saying that white wines that are made from blending two or more grape varieties together only account for about, for like less than 2% of wine sales 
in the U.S., which when you think about it, really a lot of the whites and most of the whites that we drink are all single varietal white wines, Chardonnays, Sauvignon Blancs, Pinot Grigios, Moscatos. We don't see a whole lot of white blends out there, do we, Mark? No, and you're exactly right. They said 1.7% of sales, white Mm -hmm. blends, compared to Pinot Grigio at 9% and Chardonnay at almost 19%. So this is low. And as far as retail, I can tell you my white wine blend sales are low. How about you as far as people asking questions about them, Kim? Do you get a lot of questions about white blends? Not usually. I do get that question occasionally, I think, from people who are more comfortable with drinking red blends. And then it really is an extension of that, I think, where people were like, oh, you know, there's nothing super scary about wines that are blends. Hey, these are all the reds that we're drinking. What if there's a white version as well? So that's, I think, where people's minds go. It's like, oh, it's a different version that I'm that I'm sort of looking for. So when you heard this article's the topic, what were you thinking of? When you hear white blend, what, what do you think of right away? Um, France, yes. kind of. You know, and the, the number one one that they're talking about here as far as white blends go is white Bordeaux. And I used a white Bordeaux in a recent class and very few people in the class had ever ever even had one before. They don't make up a very large percentage of what is produced in Bordeaux. I think it's somewhere between 5 and 10%, might be even lower than that. So there's not a whole lot of it out in the market, and it is unfamiliar to a lot of people. But style-wise, very approachable, um, especially those that are made with mostly Sauvignon Blanc in the blend. Very, very user-friendly. And I think for people who like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, it's a really great next wine to try. A great value too. Price usually $10 to $15. Mm-hmm. You can find an excellent white Bordeaux. And I'm so happy we're on the same page that when you think of a blend, a white blend, you think white Bordeaux as well. You're more the French person than me, <laughs> but that's what I think about. Right. So in this article, they were saying, why are these white blends so low in popularity? And they gave a few examples, one of which was most of the blends like from France are listed by the region. So people look at it like white Bordeaux. I don't want that. I don't know what it is, right? right? The confusion as to what's in the bottle and what is it going to taste like. And the second thing they mentioned, I'm trying to remember, it had something to do with aromatics. I wrote myself a note. Yeah, it was that because a lot of varietal white wines are very sort of unique unto themselves, like Riesling almost always smells like Riesling. Sauvignon Blanc almost always smells like Sauvignon Blanc. And if you put them together, something kind of gets lost in translation. It's like you lose that personality that is so strong in that particular great variety. Um, So they were saying that a lot of white blends kind of end up sort of muddied almost. It's like they're not retaining a lot of what makes them appealing as a single grape. Whereas for red blends, you're getting something that's better than the sum of its parts. You might have three red grape varieties and this one contributes some tannin and this one contributes some aromatics and this one contributes some fruity flavors and you put them all together and you have a better wine than if you just took that Grenache by itself or you just took that Mavedra by itself. And they're saying that for white wines, that that doesn't always come across, that sometimes you actually get a better wine if you just leave the grape alone and just let it be a single variety. Yes. So for the winemakers, it's easier for them to to blend reds. They know it's going to come out with some aromatics versus taking a gamble on blending whites, correct? Mm -hmm. Is that how you 
translate. Yeah. Yep. And that also because red blends can, um, you know, they can ask a little bit more money for them. They make a little bit more bang for their buck by selling a red blend as opposed to selling a white blend. This did sort of leave me scratching my head a little bit. Like, well, if red blends are so popular, why aren't white blends? And there are some examples in the market of white blends that have done exceptionally well. I put a little note for myself here that said conundrum with an exclamation point because the conundrum wine has always been very popular. And I remember when it was even hard to get, like there were, it was made in limited quantities. And once it was gone, it was gone. And it was a white blend that sold for $20, $25 a bottle. Aromatic, powerful, more in the style of a white blend that you might get from the Rhone Valley in France, and from, but from California and, and very popular and very trendy. I know that that wine has, you know, it's not quite as popular now as it was, say, 10, 15 years ago, but that was an example of a white blend that that did sort of buck this trend of, hey, you can't really sell white blends for, you know, a lot of money. Nobody's going to buy them. And it wasn't an inexpensive white blend, no. like apothic white blend. It, right. it had like 18, 19, maybe $20 price point. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's one of the issues with white blends is people got introduced with these higher-end white blends or thinking higher-end Bordeaux's. So it turned them off from experimenting with it in a way. And one thing that was not brought up in this article that also got an exclamation point for me is sparkling wine, which is almost always a blend. It's like, that's a white blend, guys. Like, yes, it has bubbles, but champagne is almost always a blend. Cava is almost always a blend. Prosecco is not a blend. Sometimes Cremant can be a blend. California sparkling wines, almost always a blend. So we drink them, people. Like, they're out there and we do consume them. We just don't look at them that way. Like we don't look at champagne as a blend. Champagne in itself is almost like a brand. Wow, champagne. And a lot of other sparkling wines sort of have this idea behind them that they are their own unique style of wine, regardless of what the grape varieties are that are going in there. So, you know, I just, I kind of wanted to think of it that way as well. It's like we actually are. And I would bet dollars to donuts that champagne and other sparkling wines are not included in that 1.7% of US sales. Yeah, because if they included point. sparkling wine, it would be a whole lot higher. Yeah. And they, they could have easily got themselves out of that issue by just saying this is on still wines only. But like you said, perfect example of a a blend, a white blend is sparkling wine. So great point. What about the issue they said white blends are not popular because most people chill single varietal whites, but white blends should be consumed at a warmer temperature. Yeah. Um, I don't so know that's if I why necessarily they don't like buy it. that um, because you can certainly consume or you're supposed to consume Chardonnay at a slightly warmer temperature than you consume your rosés, your sparkling wines, your Sauvignon Blancs. So I'm not really buying the temperature argument yeah, um, I guess if at it's, all. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that. I, I thought it was kind of a weak point to, yeah. to bring up. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about uh, winemakers, the red grapes tend to be pricier. So maybe they like making red blends more because they can make a little bit more money. And I do see that white blends, the popular ones seem to be the inexpensive stuff. Mm -hmm. And they tend to be on the sweeter side, not traditional blends like white Bordeaux. Yeah. And I'm sort of seeing this as this is a branding issue. This is a marketing issue. No one outside of Conundrum has come up with a way to market this style of wine in a way that makes it appealing for sort of a mass market. They've done it very successfully with reds and have produced 
producers want to take this approach with the white blend, then it has to be beyond just, hey, the, these are the varieties in this blend. The, we've seen so much success with California red blends that I think if there was just a more creative marketing approach tied to doing it with whites, that it certainly could happen. So this article in Vine Pair also mentioned three recommendations for white blends, Kim. The first, we talked about white Bordeaux. The second was Southern Rhone white blends. Not many people know what's in this blend. And again, there aren't a whole lot available. So you're really just either looking at producers from the Rhone Valley and especially Cote de Rhone producers, the bigger Cote de Rhone producers make a lot of reds and then they will occasionally have some whites. So there are whites out there that are almost like the sister wine to the red. You have a red Cote de Rhone and then you have this other one that'll sit right next to it and it's the white. Those are a good place, I think, for people to start if you are curious and interested in tasting what these white blends are about. They are usually a little bit richer than their Bordeaux, their white Bordeaux counterparts because the grape varieties that go into these are different and they're usually varieties that people don't have a lot of experience with. We're talking Marsan, Roussan, usually a little bit of Viognier, but they're gutsier and heavier and usually can make wines with a little bit higher alcohol. So they are they are a little different. Yes. Then the third recommendation they made, Kim, was white Riojas. Now, mm. first, I want to say this. If you think Southern Rhone white blends are rare, try finding a white Rioja no on any shelf or any restaurant list, yeah. right? Very unique. And when you do find them, they can be a little funky like huh. there are some real traditional i know you know there's a little traditional producers of rioja that some of them make these really aged whites that they don't release until they're like six seven years old they've started to turn a little brown you know they're they're this almost like natural wine style almost like an orange wine you know, there is some funky stuff out there they're not bad and they're not wrong but they are more unique and they're tailored more towards hey this is traditionally how we've made our wines in this region Region and not trying to make a wine for, I think, the modern palate who is used to bright, zippy New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs. I think it was good the article brought white blends to the forefront here to let people know there are other blends out there. They're white. I think it's a great thing to talk about, yeah. frankly. Almost use this as a launching pad off of the popularity of those red blends and be like, hey, if you're a white wine drinker, there's this whole other category of wines that you should be looking out for. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim and Mark. You can find out more information about Mark on his website. Go to franklinliquors.com and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. As I'm sure most of you remember, the last couple of seasons, fall seasons in California, have been marked by incredible wildfires. So we had wildfires in 2018, wildfires in 2017, and there was recently made a documentary by celebrity chef Tyler Florence that did tackle the topic of the wildfires uh, in 2017. And it looks like it is a fascinating uh, movie to watch. I was it called Uncrushable, right, Uncrushable. Kim? Uncrushable. And it says this is a movie that should have never been made. So right away, that kind of caught me. It's like, wow. A little clickbaity. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and they did have a nice trailer online. And I'm a huge Tyler Florence f fan. You being a foodie, do you like him as a chef? I mean... I did. I, you know, I used to watch some of his shows. I don't watch a whole lot of food television anymore, but he... Yeah, he seems like 
a good guy. And I've always been sort of interested in seeing what is popular as far as the celebrity chefs and following trends in cuisine and uh, in those kind of things, too. I like him because he does the worst cooks show. Oh, that's so right. I'm like, there's got to be people. Well, that was your, up your alley me, then. Right? Anyway, so he, he sees this fire happen. It was October 2017, Napa Sonoma. And he actually produced uh, and did fundraisers while it was all happening to help people recover. So he was there was documentation in this film of, of the fires and then after the recovery and the fundraising efforts. So he did a lot of great community work. He lived in the community. So it was really powerful. I mean, the trailer was like a three-minute trailer. Mm-hmm. Very powerful. Yeah, it really was. And I'm wondering now where I can actually watch this movie. Have you figured out, can we find it on Netflix? Is it yeah. in our local movie theater? I, where I is it? I Googled just that. Like, where can I find this yeah. movie? And usually you'll find something on iTunes or away, but all I could find was the trailer. And it was saying it was in theaters in California but I couldn't find it. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm good with that when I see these documentaries and I usually right away go to iTunes and buy them and never watch them. I always <laughs> forget. But I always, I love the documentary series on why. You know, hmm. We're geeks. So. We're geeks. We like those things. I don't know how many listeners are going to search this, but I, I did like in the trailer, if you can find, you know, find the trailer, it's called Uncrushable. He was backed by the California uh, tourist industry to do this film. And they showed, I think there was what, 44 people lost their lives in this fire. And they showed at night a picture of the area in flames. And they said it was what, in, within 24 hours, all the damage was done. Yeah. And then it, it went on for months after, but it was so destructive with the winds real fast. Yeah. And they showed some amazing video on it. Yeah, just that two, three minute clip for the trailer was really like gave me chills, like just seeing the destruction and people's reactions to, you know, losing their homes, their livelihoods, all this, all this crazy stuff. And to like see it at ground level was re- very powerful. And the trailer didn't really show, it was more residential neighborhoods they were showing, but then they interviewed, I think it was uh, Chris Benzinger uh, about the impact in the community. Didn't really talk about, in the trailer anyways, about damage to Vineyards. There were a few wineries that lost their their wineries, and he at the end he was saying how even after all this destruction, they ended up having a great growing season mm-hmm. in the vineyards there. So that was good. And did you see the pod, Kim, where they had a fundraising dinner in a vineyard? Yes, where they had those big long tables all set up, and um, yeah, it sounds like there were a lot of fundraising efforts to you know to make sure that you know these people could get back on their feet afterwards. So kudos to him for making this movie, and I hope that we. Can can find it somewhere. So stay tuned. And if we do find that it is in some sort of release, we will let y'all know. Thank you for joining us again today. We are your hosts, Kim and Mark, and we're exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Next, we want to talk about an article we found in winesearcher.com. What makes a wine expensive? And Kim, I guess first thing I'd like to do with you is define expensive. Yeah, and this article is talking about a different category of expensive wine than what I usually like to tackle when I talk about expensive wine. So for me, a lot of the wines that I recommend to people and that I like to use in my class, I like to stay between 
below like $25, $30 a bottle. Like I think that those are wines that are approachable, aren't going to break the bank. You can still use them for special occasions, a little bit of gift giving, but things that are showing what this grape variety is supposed to taste like, sort of classic regions, but aren't too much beyond what most people can get their hands on. And then when you start going a little bit more expensive than that, $50, $100, even up to $200 a bottle, like those I think are special bottles if you need to give a nice gift, that is kind of the area that you want to be in. But again, something that for a lot of people is still within the realm of possibility of getting your hands on. This article talks about that next tier, like things that I'm never going to taste, things that I'm never going to buy, you're probably never going to buy. We're talking about those things that are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a bottle, really, really small quantity, super prestige wines that are sort of stratospheric in both their cost and in how limited their production is. What about you? That's kind of where I was hoping you were going. (laughs) So for me, I guess budget, your budget determines what is expensive. Yeah. For for some people, 20 bucks is expensive. For other people, $100 is not expensive. So yeah, it, it does really stem from how much can you afford. Yeah. And I, th- I think it also leads to if you don't have the budget, you're not thinking it's expensive. You th- it's overpriced, right? right? But why is it overpriced? Or why is it expensive? And that's what and you that said. And that I talk. think is what this article is exact, trying to talk yeah. about is w- what are you paying for? If you see a bottle of wine that is $3,000 a bottle, what are you paying for? And we're leaving the category of the wine tastes better and it's moving into the cost is based on other things than just quality of the juice in the bottle. Yeah, so they mentioned three main reasons why it would lead to an expensive. And the first was, you mentioned, cost of production. Mm-hmm. So Kim, tell our listeners, what would be example of something's $3,000? Why do they have to charge $3,000 because of an expense they might have? What would be an expense? So an expense would be how much does that plot of land that those grapes are growing on? cost. How expensive is your labor? So if you have a vineyard that is all hand-picked, that you don't use any machines in the vineyard, that you have skilled laborers who this is their profession, they go through that vineyard throughout the entire season and either leaves off, pay very close attention to every single vine, really sort of are almost, um, I guess, vineyard midwives where they pay lots and lots of attention to how this uh, how this vineyard is developing, how those grapes are ripening, all of this like attention to detail in the vineyard. That's expensive. You need to pay skilled laborers who, who know this stuff. That's expensive. Special bottling is also expensive. The production itself after those grapes have been picked and if you're in the winery, you know, again, all all that attention to detail, that's also expensive. So those are some of the things that as far as cost of production, cost of raw ingredients goes into what might make more expensive wine more expensive. The, yes. the labor and the land. So that's what I pick up. About, I see a bottle of 3000 thinking exactly that. I'm thinking, okay. Like these this is better a, be the better, best grapes from the low best production, place. right? They must, they should have their own winery. It's an actual physical winery, though they have some overhead where a wine room or like you said they have staff maybe small production that would to me means yeah it should be expensive the next thing they mentioned was it's expensive because of prestige right and this is where you're starting to kind of get into that gray area of these other things that add to the cost of a wine prestige is it 
trendy? Is it popular? Is it fashionable? Is there novelty attached to it? And this really comes down to marketing, I think. Yeah, I mean, these are what they call cult wines. We right. talked about so many times in the past where you can find them on the internet, but you, you're not going to be able to buy it. Right. You know? It's based on this perception of these wines as being these hard-to-find luxury goods. It says something about you if you can afford and you can purchase and you can actually have in your hands this bottle of, say, Screaming Eagle. You know, it's it's not just about what does the wine taste like at this point. It's what is it saying about me that I can drink this wine or that I can own this wine. And being the wine history geek that I also am, this has been played out. This is not just, this is not a modern phenomenon. This is something that does have history to it. You know, there were wines back, you know, 300, 400 years ago that, that this was the exact same thing. It's like, what were those really high, hard to find, prestigious wines that were very expensive? And if you could afford to own them and you could afford to drink them, that said something about your social class. It said something about who you were. And this is really just a continuation of that. So that's my history plug there. And the prestige and the cult following of the also has to do with the the cost of production. I mean, that's how they got this prestige Mm -hmm. or because of their land, because of their production methods, correct? So it had to have started with something. Like it's not going to be terrible wine in the bottle, obviously. You know, there's a reason why land in Napa goes for how many millions of dollars an acre. It's that's land that produces really, really excellent quality grapes. Burgundy is the same way. There are places that produce really great fine wines. And then as the desire for those wines grows and as the demand outstrips the supply, that's where you get these these prices that are sort of astronomical. But if there are people who are willing to spend those kind of dollars for the wine, the producers can really charge these amounts. I think a good example to give our listeners of how you can determine why something's expensive when you look it on the shelf, you just you just mentioned like Napa. If you're in a store and you see a Cabernet and one's $10, the other's $50, one's, the $10 one's probably going to say California, the $50 one's going to say Napa. So people think, well, that's expensive, right? But it's expensive because of where it is from, mm-hmm. you know? So I just want to kind of give an yeah. example. But then that. there's that difference between that $50 bottle of Napa Cabernet that, yes, you can tell the difference between that $10 bottle and that $50 bottle. But if you're sitting in a blind tasting and you've got a glass of a $50 bottle and a glass of a $5,000 bottle, is that, can you taste that difference? No, there's all these You other will things. if they tell you it's a $5,000 Well, sure, <laughs> but that's not what I mean. Yeah. You know, there there are these other things that come into play above and beyond. Do I, do I like this wine? And how good does it taste in my glass? So, yeah. Nope. The last thing they talked about, Kim, was collectability mm-hmm. of the wine yep. makes it expensive. Right. And th- this is another, but this is adding context to that bottle. So like when you talk about wines that were, I don't know, auctioned off because they were in Thomas Jefferson's cellar, it's not at that point about the quality of the wine in the bottle because at this point, 250-year-old wine is going to be garbage. But history. There's, you're buying but your history. But there's history. Yes. You are buying a, it's almost like you're buying an archaeological relic at this point. So it's not just about the wine. It's about all of these other things that are now associated with that bottle. Yeah, and I think people... 
it's like art when they you know it's totally the same thing it's like this is now a this is now a piece of art it's now a piece of history and a true wine lover who's collecting wines thinks of that they're thinking of the place they're thinking of the vineyard and they want a piece of it and Mm -hmm. they they will pay for it so to them it's not expensive it's it's a piece of history or a piece of someone's personal property i guess you could say and for that person yes it still has value like the value of the item is determined by what people are willing to pay for it so even if it is manufactured even if there is there this price inflation that's attributed with it with to it it's not because of the juice that's in the bottle it's because of all of these other things that go along with it so yeah this is a, a separate conversation than the well why should i spend $65 on this bottle when I could get a bottle that I also like to drink that's $15. This is not that conversation. This is this is a little a little bit different and frankly I'm not one to go to wine auctions. I'm not I'm not going to spend $3000 on a no, but we, historical we bottle of wine. We both bought know. expensive or splurged on an expensive sure. wine. So what would you say that you how did you justify it? The last time you splurged and bought an expensive bottle, mm-hmm. you justify it by saying what? Special, Special occasion, occasion, right? So style of wine that makes me happy, or something that, you never see and you just yeah. wanted to try it, or giving a gift to someone that yes, this might be way more than I would spend on every day, but it's a prestigious region, or it's a great variety that we love, and wanted to do something that was a little special. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. For past episodes, you can find us on iTunes at The Wonderful World of Wine or follow us on Facebook, also at The Wonderful World of Wine.